Miss the kids. They're downstairs. Take your Bibles to Romans chapter 12, please. Excuse me, Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 14. Looking at 12 principles in this chapter and in the first part of chapter 15 on the Sunday community, specifically when it comes to unity. When we disagree, and we can disagree, and we will, and we can be unified. Now there are some, again, areas, core doctrinal areas where God is always right, and if we disagree with God, we're wrong, and we'll always be wrong. There are some areas where God is not as clear on decision-making and choices as he is in other areas, he is very clear, for instance, on the subject of adultery or fornication or those kinds of things. He is very clear on the subject of stealing and lying and cheating. Very clear on those. He is very clear on a doctrine of a virgin birth, of heaven, <coughs> hell, eternity. For the lost, for the saved. He's very clear on those. And God will always be right on those. And if we disagree with God, or whoever disagrees with God is wrong. But there are some areas where we can disagree on certain things and still find unity. For instance, maybe you know someone whose church doesn't have services on Sunday night. Does that mean they're wrong. Well, no. It doesn't mean they're wrong. It just means that's what they've chosen to do as a church body. Some people say, well, if we're going to be a New Testament church, we're going to have church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. Well, if we're going to be a New Testament church, we need to know whose house we can come to tomorrow because the New Testament church met daily house to house. So when we use phrases like New Testament church, we better be, uh, be sure we understand that even God doesn't expect us to always do things as they were done in the past. So we're talking about unity. We've talked about several principles so far in chapter 14. We are to welcome, and, and, and here again, this is the heart of the issue. This, 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 this principle is bookending this section. You see it in chapter 14, verse 1. You see it in chapter 15, verse 7. Receive, welcome, take in. Don't push away. Don't keep people at arm's length who disagree, disagree with. And quite honestly, that's easy. To, it's, it's easier to just push people away than to accept people. It really is. Well, if they don't agree with me, then I don't want anything to do with them. Well, that just means we probably don't want people disagreeing with us because we might change our minds. Okay, they might convince us that we're wrong. So let's just... No, we are welcoming to them. Principle number two, those who have freedom of conscience must not look down on those who don't. Maybe your conscience doesn't restrict you in certain areas and you have freedom in your conscience and are convinced in your conscience that, that you're okay, but other people would not agree with you on 
those kind of books. Don't look down. Don't condemn. Don't show contempt for those who don't. Those whose conscience restricts them. Principle number three. Those whose conscience are more restrictive must not be judgmental towards those who have freedom. Maybe you're restricted in a certain, maybe you won't do or can't do because conscience, your conscience will not allow. And other people, you just don't understand why they do those things you yourself can't do. Well, again, we are not to judge or condemn or Consider them ungodly or unchristian because of the freedoms that they have. Principle number four, each believer must be fully convinced of their position in their own conscience. You have to know in your kind, you do know, right? You, you know, you, you know what your conscience sounds like. You know what your conscience says. And your decisions need to be based on the fact that you have complete freedom in your conscience. Because the Bible is clear. Never, never, never violate your conscience. And you know when you've done that. Now there's a difference between violating and training. There's a difference between violating your conscience and training your conscience. Peter had to go through a quick training course on conscience when when God wanted him to do the, the, the most important thing, and that was go to reach people with the gospel. But because of Peter's conscience, he hadn't been able to, to reach certain people or take the gospel to certain groups of people, Gentiles specifically. So God used the picture of unclean animals based on the law, law of animals that were unclean from Old Testament times. And Peter said, well, I've never eaten those. And God had to teach him what's not what goes into you that defiles you, it's what's in you, comes out of you. I want you to be more concerned about the gospel. There's a bigger picture here. Get over it. Okay, go. All right, so we must be convinced in our own conscience. <coughs> and then number five, assume, assume that others are partaking or refraining the glory of God. That ought to be how we, that ought, that ought to just be our mindset. That ought to just be our default setting. People who don't think like us, people who don't do what we do or do what we don't do. We ought to just assume, well, they're just trying to glorify God over life, just like I am. And that's going to revolutionize how we treat each other. That's going to revolutionize how we think about each other. Don't assume the opposite of that. Don't assume that their actions are sin or sinful and yours are always right. Because you can both be wrong. So, in areas where there can be disagreements, always come down on the side of loving the other person enough to believe the best about them that they want to glorify God with their life as well. Now, let's talk about principle number six. For principle number six, let's look at verse number 10. But why dost thou judge thy brother 
Or why dost thou set it not by brother? The idea of the, the phrase set it not is actually an, ins an insult. Set it not means to, to, to actually view them as completely insignificant, unimportant. That is an unbiblical attitude. Why dost thou set it not by brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow, and every tongue shall confess to God. So that every one of us shall give an account of himself to God. Let's pray. Father, make this sobering reality, this sobering truth, life-changing for us today. Pray that our thoughts would not be on what other people should be hearing or thinking, but on what we need to hear and how we should be thinking. I pray that the change would take place in us rather than our desire to be change in somebody else's life today. Make this text work in our hearts today. And I thank you that your word is powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword. I thank you that it's like a fire, it's like a hammer, it's like a sword, it's like medicine. And so I pray that your word would do all that we need it to do today. And I ask you in Jesus' name. Amen. So here's the principle based on verses 10 through 12. Do not judge each other in these matters because we will all someday stand before the judgment seat of God, of Christ. We are all going to meet Christ face to face. Now I want to make, I want, I want to clarify a couple of things when we talk about the judgment seat. I actually believe the Bible teaches that there are two judgment seats, possibly three, but I know that there are definitely two, all right? I know that one of those is referred to here in Romans chapter 14. It's also referred to for us in Paul's writing to the church at Corinth. That particular judgment seat is sometimes called the Bema seat, the judgment for believers, it is the place where every child of God will, as Romans 14, verse number 12 says, give an account of ourself to God. There's a second judgment. The text in Romans 14 refers again to the judgment seat of Christ. We read at the end of the book of Revelation of a judgment called the great white throne judgment. They, the, the terminology is referring to the purity of the one who sits upon it. It is again Jesus who is on that throne. My pastor, when we were in North Carolina, preached a message one time, everyone has a future with fire. Everyone has a future with fire. 
immediately some people are going to say, well, no, none of the believers aren't going to, we, we're, we're not going to spend eternity in hell. And you're exactly right. But, again, everyone has a future with fire. And the fire will either be for purification or punishment. The fire of purification takes place at the Bema Seat, the Judgment Seat of Christ. When believers, we are told, actually, let's just turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, please. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. <clears throat> Verse number 10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Again, that sounds almost exactly what he has said to the church uh, in Rome back in our text this morning. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone may receive the things done in his body <coughs> according to that he hath done, whether it be good or Bad. Now, we're not talking about a judgment dealing with sin here. Now, I want to be very clear on that. For the believer, our sin was judged at Calvary. Our sin was put, put on Christ, laid on Him, and it's never going to be brought up again. I remember growing up, I heard messages that absolutely terrified me about the judgment seat of Christ. <coughs> I would hear preachers stand up and talk about the fact that at the judgment seat of Christ there's going to be like this huge screen and everybody from air that's ever lived, every believer that's ever lived, they're all going to see this big screen and God's going to put your life up on that big screen and God's going to show everybody everything you've ever done. That's heresy. That's just plain heresy. What happened at Calvary took care of my sin. There's not going to be a big screen. I don't even know if any other believer is going to be there. I tend to think, no, I tend to think it's going to be more effective if it's just me and Jesus alone. Or maybe I should say it this way, even more sobering with just me and Jesus alone. And I don't know how he's going to do all that. He's God. He's infinite. He can do everybody at one time and still be alone with all of us. But I do know, according to what the scripture says here, we will give an account for everything we've done in our body, whether it be good or bad. Now, that's not sin and good works. Those words refer to things that are worthwhile or worthless. Just reminds you of a couple of parables. There's a couple of parables that help us to understand, I think, what the judgment seat of Christ is all about. And basically, the parables are very similar in their structure. There's a master, and the master gives to the workers, the servants, gifts or abilities or, or money or assignments, those kinds of things. And he says to them, all right, I'm giving each of you a particular amount or an assignment, and then I'm going to go away for a while. And when I come back, I want you to tell me what you've done with what I've given you. 
And I think the story, the parable, that those parables help us to understand that's what it's like for you and I. God has given each of us an amount. That's not necessarily referring to money. That may be referring to ability. That may It may include how it certainly, I think, does include how we use our money, but it's not primarily talking about that. It's just how we take what God has given us and used it for our master. And one day he's going to come back. Now, none of us knows when that is. One day Jesus is going to come back and he's going to call us into account to give an account, to tell the story of how we took how we took what he gave us and used for him. Okay? And for the believer, when the Bible says, whether it be good or bad, even in those parables, we read that some took what God gave them and it multiplied. Others took what God gave them and they squandered it. Or they didn't do anything with it. And they were rebuked by their master. Now, if you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, nothing's ever going to change that. You will not lose your salvation at the beam of seat, but every one of us will have to give an account of how we take, how we've, how we've used what our Master has left us to use for Him. Now, that's somewhat frightening. That's somewhat sobering. And I have to admit to you, I have personally what I would consider, I have some life motivators. One of the, one of the primary motivations for my life as a whole is knowing that I am going to one day meet Jesus face to face and tell him the story of how I used what he gave me or how I abused what he gave me. That's what those two words mean. Good and bad it means worthwhile, worthless, or useless, or useful. So some believers, some believers take what they've been given to them by, by their master, given them by their master, and, and they waste it. It's basically useless. And they're going to have to explain that to Jesus someday. Now go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Now notice, again, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone will receive the things done in his body according to that he had done, whether it be good or bad. Now notice the next phrase, knowing therefore the, say that next word, terror of the Lord. We persuade men. Now this is not saying, this is not saying that we ought to be terrorized to the point of paralyzed by fear of God or fear of this judgment. But this is saying the same thing I believe the writer of, the, of Hebrews said, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And so every one of us one day, as believers, will give an account of ourselves to God. 
Now, I mentioned the second judgment. Go to Revelation chapter 20, please. Revelation chapter 20. This is what is called, the Bible calls it, the great white throne. It uses those, that, that terminology. In verse number 11, Revelation 20, 11, And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away. Now this is a different kind of terror than 2 Corinthians 5.11. 2 Corinthians 5.11 is a reverence. It's a, it, it's, it's a fear that motivates us to, to make sure that our, our life is worthwhile for Christ, useful for Christ. The terror in Revelation 20 described at the beginning of verse number 11 is a terror that causes us causes unbelievers to flee, to run. I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it from whose face the earth and heaven fled away and there was not found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things were written, which were written in the books according to, again, their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged every man according to their works, and death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Now, the two different judgments. The judgment seat of Christ. Fire that tries every man's work. Paul describes it that way to the Corinthian believers. A fire that tries or purifies every man's work. Here, the great white throne. A fire of eternal punishment because of sin. Believers at the judgment seat of Christ. Unbelievers at the great white throne. <coughs> And so, friend, if you're here and you don't know the Lord Jesus, this is your future. Revelation 20, verse number 11, is your future <coughs> unless you come to Christ as Savior. And we won't go into a lot of detail on the great white throne. But let me just say, it is a place of absolute hopelessness Helplessness. This isn't a judgment to see if you've been good enough in hell now to get out so you can go to heaven. It's not that at all. It's a judgment to prove that the sentence, the punishment of your sin is just and right, and it's what you deserve. And you will be taken from hell and cast into what the Bible describes here as the lake of fire. Hell is essentially a holding cell. The lake of fire is eternal. Now, let's go back to Romans chapter 14. Because our concern in Romans 14, again, is believers. And Romans 14, our, our principle here is referring to the judgment seat of Christ. The fact is, every believer in this room, every person who knows Christ as Savior, will someday stand 
or meet Jesus face to face. And notice what it says there in verse number 12. We shall give an account, an accounting. This, this, is, this is a financial term. This is, this is an auditing term. This is, this is going through the books and making sure that everything is, is there like it's supposed to be. An accounting uh, uh, to make sure that everything is right in the books, so to speak. And so one of these days, every one of us is going to have our life as a believer audited by Jesus. And we're going to tell him the story. We're going to have to tell him whether our life really has been useless or useful for the kingdom of God. Now, now I don't know about you, and I know I'm not adequately describing this, but I don't know about you. But I want to be useful for Jesus. I, I don't want to have to one day explain to him why my money was basically no use to him. Or my talents, if I had any, were basically useless to him. Or how my time was basically not used for him, it was used for me. I, I don't want to have to explain to him that, that as a father, I wasted my discipleship with my children. Or as a husband, that I didn't bring my wife along to, to see her purified in the image of Christ like the church is being purified by Christ himself. I, I don't want to one day meet Jesus and have to explain to him that, yes, I knew that the Great Commission was for me, but I never found my place in it and fulfilled the Great Commission with my life. I want my life to be useless. And here's the point of the principle today. The point is, we ought to be more concerned about our own standing here and at the judgment seat than we are about others and condemning them for their choices. Jesus is the ultimate and only righteous judge. And we will all, as believers, give an account to him. And with that in mind, we really don't have time to be judging others. We ought to be judging ourselves. We ought to be giving or taking an account now of our life. And if we thought about our own situation before the judgment throne of God, we would be probably, we would be less likely to pass judgment on other believers because at the judgment seat, we'll be answering for our own life. We ought to be doing that now. And so we don't need to spend our short lives here meddling in the lives of others, judging others and their motives. And in the matters where Christians, good Christians can disagree, we need to be concerned about our own consciences and let God be the judge of others. We're going to give an account ourselves to God. 
You know what we're not going to do at the judgment seat? We're not going to have excuses. You know what else we're not going to do at the judgment seat of Christ? We're not going to be able to point the finger at somebody else and say, well, did you see how they lived? At the judgment seat of Christ, it will be a place where we absolutely accept responsibility. Because it can be no other way with Christ. So let's accept responsibility now and stop being judgment, judgmental of other people, realizing that we will give an account of ourselves to God. Let's pray. Father,